Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. We are uh, continuing our series that I've entitled Glorious Ruin. We've been making our way through the book of Job, uh, the depressing book of Job. Uh, We've been talking about suffering, and I've said week in and week out that the book of Job, the story of Job, is really about... uh, our suffering and God's sovereignty, our, our pain and God's providence. It's, it's the place where we see uh, God's compassion and our catastrophe meet. Um, it's a place where we see God in his complete controlness uh, being with us in our suffering. And so we've been looking at Job because the story of Job is an honest look, really, at pain and doubt from the one who lost everything, everything. Uh, this is part six, uh, and I'm hoping that this will be maybe 11 parts. It might be 12 parts, so that means we're about halfway through or a little bit more than halfway through. Um, but as I was re-looking at some of the story yesterday and re-studying some of the themes that we've already looked at, uh, it struck me that this story really is, as I said, an honest look at, at pain and doubt from the life of one who lost everything. And while, unlike Job, we may not have lost everything, you and I both know what it feels like to lose. All of us do. If you're a human being, you know what it feels like to lose in in some way. When most of us think about suffering, we think of large losses, like the loss of someone we love to death, or the loss of a marriage or relationship, the, the loss of physical health, you know, the big stuff. But suffering is much broader than that, as we've looked at week in and week out, suffering may take the form of tragedy, heartbreak, or addiction, or it could be something more mundane like resentment, loneliness, or or disappointment. Suffering may be the shocking news of a brain tumor, for instance, or it can be something more ordinary like a strained relationship that never seems to get any easier. Everyday stuff like frustration, regret, Anxiety, fear, insecurity, stress, shame, unmet expectations, and the disappointment that follows that. All of that is suffering too. It's not just the big stuff. It's not just crises. It's all of that stuff. A nagging sense of not being enough. The fear that maybe you missed a life-changing opportunity and you, can, you can't go back in time and recapture it. The feeling of being misunderstood. The feeling of being rejected. All of that stuff is suffering. And I've said that the book of Job really is about the fact that we are all broken people living in a broken world with other broken people, but with a faithful and gracious God. Um, We all suffer. Pain is unavoidable. And we all know that when it comes to suffering, there's no such thing as getting a grip on yourself or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Even though that's sometimes what we hear from one another when we're in a season of pain, when we're in a season of despair, when we're in a down season, a losing season, sometimes people around us will try to help us by motivating us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to just get a grip on things, get it together, you can make it. And you know how you feel when you get that kind of counsel and you're down and out. You, you, just, you want that person to shut up and go away. You know that if you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you would. If you could get a grip on things, you would. But sometimes, because life is hard and pain is real, sometimes that seems impossible. Impossible. 
Um, Job knew that firsthand. If this story teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that there are no easy answers to suffering at all. There are no pat answers to real pain. Someone once said that mercy, and I love this, mercy is the permission to be human. And I love that because what it means is that it's okay to doubt. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to wonder. It's it's even okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be completely human. It is It is an expression of God's mercy to us which allows us to feel those things and express those things and and experience those things. You're not being less spiritual or less faithful when you honestly express frustration or doubt or confusion or whatever the case may be. But what will heal us ultimately and what will help us ultimately is a transforming encounter with the enormity of God with the size of God, that's what will ultimately help us. That's what will ultimately heal us. You know, God, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, and we'll look at this again, but God, God never gave Job an explanation for why he suffered all that he suffered. Never. Job and his friends were wondering why Job was suffering the way he was suffering, and God never explains to Job why he suffered what he suffered. He never answers the question why, ever. But what God did is he simply showed Job who he was. And that was enough for Job. But we'll get to that when we get to the end of the series. I don't want to get ahead of myself. From chapters 3 through 37, Job and his friends try to answer the question, why is this happening? Job's wondering why this is happening to him. He's lost everything. His friends are wondering why this has happened to him because he's lost everything. He's disheveled. He's undone. And they're trying to figure out, they're they're haggling for over 30 chapters. They're haggling with one another trying to figure out why this is happening. And we saw last week that Job's friends think that Job is suffering because of something he has done wrong. That God is punishing Job for misconduct of some sort. That's what they think. They make this moralistic assumption that good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff. Job is clearly getting bad stuff, so he must have done something bad to deserve it. That's their view of the world. His friend Eliaphaz, in chapter 4, summarizes all of his friend's assumption when he says this to Job. Think. Has a truly innocent person ever ended up on the scrap heap? The answer to that is yes, first of all, if you fast forward to the cross. He goes on to say, do genuinely upright people ever lose out in the end? It is my observation that those who plow evil and sow trouble reap evil and trouble. That's their view of the world. That's their view of God. That's their view of life in a broken world. That if you're getting bad stuff, it's because God on high is punishing you for bad stuff that you've done. And if you're getting good stuff, it's because you've done something good to deserve it. And God is now blessing you. That's their view of the world. I said how last week, how Jesus's disciples made the same assumption in John chapter nine, when they're walking along together and they happen to come up onto a man that was born blind and Jesus' disciples made the same assumption that Job's friends made in asking Jesus, who sinned, teacher, this man or his parents that he was born blind? 
In other words, clearly his being born blind is punishment for someone's sins. Is it his or is it his parents? Now compare that view, Jesus' disciples' view, Job's friends' view, that good people get good stuff, bad people get bad stuff. If you're getting bad stuff, it means you've done something bad. And if you're getting good stuff, it means you've done something good. Now, now compare that view of God as a cosmic scorekeeper with what Psalm 103 says about God. Listen to this. God is sheer mercy and grace, not easily angered. He's rich in love. He doesn't endlessly nag and scold or hold grudges. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, nor pay us back for our wrongs. As far as sunrise is from sunset, he has separated us from our sins. Now that's what God has to say about God. As opposed to what Job's friends have to say about God, Jesus' disciples in John chapter 9 had to say about God, and oftentimes what you hear Christians say about God. There are variations to this, of course. I mean, if you've been in or around the church for any length of time or been around Christians for any time at all, then at some point, I'm pretty sure you've heard something along the lines of what Job's friend said to Job. That, you know, if, you're, if you want good stuff from God, be good, be obedient, be faithful, and you'll see the bounty of God's blessings flow your way. And if you want to avoid bad stuff from God, avoid bad stuff, because if you do bad stuff, God's going to give you bad stuff. Okay, now that's exactly, exactly. Now we hear this on the more positive end sometimes when we hear from, uh, you know, some preachers that are typically on TV at about three o'clock in the morning on some strange station, okay? And they will promise you health, wealth, and prosperity if you just exercise a mustard seed of faith. You exercise faith, and God is therefore bound to bless you. Okay, now that's exactly the kind of mentality regarding God that Job's friends embodied, that Jesus' disciples embodied in John chapter 9, and how so often we embody that. But how different is that from the way God describes God? In Psalm 103, what that means, what Psalm 103 is saying is that God does not dole out misery in proportion to our sin. That's not who he is. That pain is not God's payback for bad behavior. It's not what it is. I said last week that we don't believe in karma, we believe in grace. Two very, very different things. We believe that the link between suffering and deserving was severed once and for all on the cross. That at the cross, all accounts were settled fully and finally. So that from this point forward, there's no payback because of bad stuff that we've done. And as Samuel mentioned a few minutes ago, um, and I wholeheartedly concur and agree, and you've probably heard me say this before, that it's very possible that your greatest failure may be ahead of you. It may be in front of you. And the good news of the gospel is that God's unconditional love covers you even though your greatest failure may be in front of you. That there is forgiveness waiting for you in your future failure. That's mind-blowing. It sounds too good to be true. Um, Job's friends uh, weren't wrong. They were not wrong to believe that sin has consequences. We know that to be true. You make a stupid decision... And, you know, you, you have to suffer some consequences for that stuff. You want to 
You want to make foolish decisions, then you're going to have to deal with the consequences that flow from foolish decisions, okay? We know that to be true. Um, They weren't wrong to believe that sin has consequences. They were wrong, however, to assume that Job was suffering because he was being punished for something he did. That's where they were wrong. Um, And they were wrong for assuming that a relationship with God is a meritocracy, What I mean by that is that we achieve the favor of God, the blessing of God by our performance, that we merit it. It's transactional. But the Bible makes it clear that a relationship with God is not a meritocracy. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's not something that we can work hard and get. That's not what it is. Um, All three, um, the, the idea behind that is that if we are clean, we will get God's blessing, and if we are dirty, we will get God's cursing. Okay, that's, that's a meritocracy. It's a transactional or conditional understanding of how God relates to us. Well, the Bible presents a very, very different view of how God relates to us. Um, all three of Job's friends, in different ways, prescribe a rescue to Job that can be earned, worked for, achieved, We already looked at what Eliaphaz said. Listen to what Bildad says, his friend Bildad, okay? Any of you have a friend named Bildad? I don't. Um, Bildad, okay? Uh, In chapter eight, listen to what he says. Does God mess up? He's getting frustrated with Job. They're getting frustrated with Job because every time that they uh, say to Job, Job, just come clean, man. Clearly you're getting bad stuff because you've done something bad. We're your friends, man. We're not gonna go anywhere. We're a safe group of people that you can confess your sins and secrets to. But the fact that you keep holding it back and not telling the truth about yourself is starting to frustrate us. Okay, that's what their assumption was. And Job's like, dude, I'm not, I mean, we know as the reader, because we read chapter one and two, that Job's not suffering because he did bad stuff. In fact, one could argue that he's suffering because he was good, not bad, okay? Uh, So Job's friend's assumptions are frustrating Job, and Job finds himself in the awkward position of not only suffering, but having to defend himself. And his friends are getting frustrated with the fact that he's defending himself. Um, And so Bildad finally speaks up. He's had it. He can't stand to hear Job defending himself anymore. And so he says, very frustratingly, does God mess up? Does God Almighty ever get things backwards? I mean, Job, it's plain that your children sinned against him. Otherwise, why would God have punished them? Why would God have killed them if they hadn't done something wrong? I mean, this is a guy dealing with the death of all of his children. And this is his friend, Job. Come on, man. Let's just, let's be honest with each other here. Obviously, your children were doing bad stuff or were doing something wrong to deserve God killing them. I mean, God doesn't mess up. He doesn't make mistakes. This wasn't a mistake. Then he goes on to say, here's what you must do. And don't put it off any longer, Job. Get down on your knees before God Almighty. If you're as innocent and upright as you say you are, then it's not too late. He'll come running. He'll set everything right again and reestablish your fortunes. Even though you're not much right now, you'll end up better than ever. That's what Bildad says. To Job, it sounds like a lot of things I've heard from a lot of Christians over the years, to be honest with you. Um, Do right, be good, get blessed. 
Um, your obedience and your faithfulness will generate God's favor in your life. But interestingly, if Bildad were right and Job were to subscribe to his solution, then Satan would have won, okay? Because getting Job's stuff back would have proven to be Job's primary goal, okay? So remember in the beginning, the devil, this mysterious conversation that happens between the devil and God in some mysterious place, um, and the devil says to God, well, I know why Job is loyal to you. I know why Job is devoted to you. I know why Job loves you. Look at what you've done. I mean, you've made him a rich man. You've given him a great reputation. He's got power. He's got influence. He's got all that stuff. I mean, no wonder he worships you. No wonder he's devoted to you. No wonder he's committed to you because he gets something out of it. But if you take his stuff away, then he won't worship you anymore. He won't be devoted to you anymore. He won't love you anymore. And so God gives the devil permission to afflict Job, but then he sets certain limits as to what the devil can and cannot do. Well, if Bildad were correct, Job, just come clean and you'll get all your stuff back. Just come clean and God will restore to you all of the fortune and all of the blessing that you lost because of your sin. Come clean. Don't be, don't waste any more time. If Job would have said, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. I do want my stuff back, and I, 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 it did get taken away from me because I was a bad guy, so I'm going to become a good guy. Why? To get my stuff back. So if Bildad's solution, okay, if Job were to have subscribed to Bildad's solution to his pain, then he would have proven the devil to be right, that Job only worshiped God or served God or loved God because of all the stuff God gave him. Um, listen to what... Um, Zophar, anybody have a friend named Zophar? Okay. Listen to what his friend Zophar said in chapter 11. If you set your heart on God, he's saying this to Job. If you set your heart on God and reach out to him, if you scrub your hands of sin and refuse to entertain evil in your home, you will be able to face the world unashamed and keep a firm grip on life, guiltless and fearless. A lot of pressure, you know? He goes on to say, if you do that, you'll forget your troubles. They'll, they'll be like old faded photographs. Your world will be washed in sunshine, every shadow dispersed by dawn, full of hope. You'll relax. You'll be confident again. You'll look around, sit back, and take it easy. Expansive, without a care in this world, you'll be hunted out by many for your blessing. But if you remain sinful, you will see none of this. I mean, that's, this is, this is the, the counsel that his friends are delivering to him in his time of need, in his time of pain. Job, you're clearly getting bad stuff because you've done something bad, but you can get yourself out of this mess. Just get clean, get right, confess, do what you got to do, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and if you do, God will restore your fortune. God will give you everything that you long for. He'll take away the ache. In other words, the only way for Job to be rescued is for him to get himself clean. If he wants God to come back to him, he must make himself worthy of God's love and attention. His friends have no concept of grace whatsoever. None. It's all works. It's all works. You got yourself into this mess. 
This is why you're suffering. You get yourself out of this mess and the suffering will cease. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about Job, what he's done and what he must do or what they assume he's done and what they think he must do. There's no concept of grace whatsoever. It's, it's all works. Their prescriptions sound like a lot of preaching these days. <laughs> do more, try harder, get cleaner. Now, I say that stuff a lot around here, and I'm sure that sometimes you guys wonder if I'm exaggerating just a bit, you know? I mean, as if I ever embellish anything ever. I never, ever embellish anything, okay? That's a bit of an embellishment. But I'm sure that sometimes, you know, you guys go, really, is there that much sort of do more, try harder, get clean out there? behind pulpits and in churches and blah, blah, blah. And you guys think I'm making this stuff up. So I try to bring some proof with me every time I, I make that accusation. So let me, let me read you the premise. I had, to go, I had to go like deep into my vault to find this. I knew I had it, and it took me a while to, to look for it. Um, but I want to read you the premise of a best-selling book from a respected Christian teacher, not some wingnut out there, okay? This is a respected Christian teacher and writer. And the premise of the book begins with a question. How do I know I'm good with God? Okay? How do I know I'm good with God? Think about that question. How, how do I know I'm good with God? How can I know that God and me are mates? That I'm okay with God? How, how can I know? How do... How do I know I'm good with God? And then, in answer to that question, he asks us 10 diagnostic questions. You want to know how you can know if you're good with God? Ask yourself these questions. Do I thirst for God? Do I grieve over my sin? Am I a quicker forgiver than I used to be? Am I more loving Am I sensitive to God's presence? Am I concerned for other people? Am I governed by God's word? Do I delight in the church? Are the spiritual disciplines important to me? Do I yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? You see why some of that stuff is very seductive because it sounds right, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, shouldn't a Christian grieve over their sin and long for heaven and to be with Jesus? Of course, no one's arguing that. But to ask those 10 diagnostic questions as a way to get an answer to the question, how can I know I'm good with God, is poison. Poison. Notice, not one mention of Jesus in any of those questions. Not one. Even though the Bible announces very plainly that what makes us good with God is God. You don't got to write a whole book on it. It's a sentence. How do I know I'm good with God? God makes us good with God, period, full stop. That's, that's, but, but that's, so this stuff is out there. I mean, it's, it's out there, and I only say that. I, I never name names, and I, because I, I don't, that's not the point. The point is not to villainize certain people or villainize certain groups or whatever. That's not what I want to do. In fact, I want to avoid that at all costs, but part of what it looks like to equip you guys to have sort of a, a red flag go up and go off in your mind when you hear some of this stuff. It sounds good. In fact, it sounds like what I've heard my whole life. 
And I was telling this group of people yesterday, what, what you hear here on Sunday morning, week in and week out, it's not my message, okay? It's not. It may seem new to you, but it's not new in reality. Uh, it's just, it's so old and it's been lost for so long that it seems new, but it's not. Which is one of the reasons I not only preach from the Bible to show you that it's there, but also to point out what different people say. It's why I pepper my sermons with quotes from people who are dead and people who are alive so that you can see this isn't just my message and it's not a brand new message. This is clearly the message that is taught by God himself. You see, the difference between a moralistic prescription and grace is that grace locates restoration and rescue in God's work for us not our work for him. The gospel is the good news that the determining factor in my relationship with God is God's love for me, not my love for him. His commitment to me, not my commitment to him. His faithfulness, not mine. That the determining factor, the determining factor in my relationship with God or how God relates to me is based on his goodness, not mine. His faithfulness, not mine. His work for me, not my work for him. So our vindication is found in God's declaration that he's made us clean, not our obligation to make ourselves clean. Um, I know this may sound counterintuitive, but I want you to think about this. If you only hear me say one sentence today at all, remember this one, that Christianity is not about our movement toward God. Christianity is about God's movement toward us. Okay, I mean, that's, I don't know how much more clearer the Bible can be. John chapter one, the gospel of John, makes it very clear that the world was dark that we, were, we weren't asking God to come. We weren't asking for a rescuer. It's because we were bad and needy and weak that God the Father sent God the Son to rescue us. Later, the Apostle Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There are, throughout the Bible, we see this all the time, week in and week out here, that throughout the Bible, we always see God taking the initiative, God moving toward us in our badness and in our weakness, not our moving toward God. Our, our relationship to God is not fundamentally based on how well we can move toward him, but how certain it is that he's moved toward us. And while hearing that God alone makes us okay with God, while hearing that is relieving and comforting and liberating, it can also be offensive. Okay, I've said this before, but uh, I had a professor in seminary named, a theology professor in seminary named Doug Kelly, and he looked at us one day and he said, if you want to make people mad, preach the law. If you want to make people furious, preach grace. And he said, there's a reason for that. Because the law offends us because it tells us what to do. And we don't like anybody telling us what to do. But grace offends us even more because it tells us that there's nothing we can do. And if there's anything we hate more than being told what to do, it's being told that we can't do anything. That the only thing we bring to the table of our relationship with God is sin and resistance, Martin Luther said. Sin and resistance, that's what we bring. Archbishop William Temple, hundreds of years later, 
so that the only thing we contribute to our rescue is the sin that makes our rescue necessary. That's it. You go back before that, and the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't come into this world morally neutral. We don't come into this world uh, neutral as it pertains to God. We come into this world not morally or spiritually sick. We come into this world dead, spiritually dead. But that God makes us alive. And he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he stops and he adds this parenthetical statement because he knows that we're all merit mongers and he wants us to stop and go, now listen, you may be confused by what I just said. I said that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And typically what we do in that moment is go, there's my contribution right there, faith. That's it. Thank you. God, I'm so glad you took me 99 yards down the field. But let's be honest, I'm the one who punched in the end zone, okay? If it wasn't for my faith, I wouldn't have gotten there. Paul knows that's what we're thinking because he understands the human condition. And so what does he say when he says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, He stops and goes, now hold on a minute, time out. That faith that I just talked about, that doesn't come from you. That's from God. So the faith that is required to believe in God is also a gift from God. Also, it's all of grace. So we see this over and over and over again, um, that it is... It is God's work for us that makes us right with God, that establishes our rightness before God. And that can be comforting and liberating and it can be relieving. But it can also be very offensive. The, The flesh is very resistant to it is finished. We like just do it. It promises a little bit of control. Well, if you give me a checklist of things to do, then it's up to me to accomplish the checklist. And if I do accomplish the checklist, then I'll be able to have the life that I want. So there's a part of us that even though the law offends us because it tells us what to do, it also promises some measure of control. Grace is chaotic. It seems reckless. It wrestles control out of our hands. We hate being told that we can't do something on our own. We can't stand the idea that we are helpless. It insults us when the prophet Jeremiah says that our hearts are desperately sick. When David says we are all corrupt. It offends us when the apostle Paul says we can't save ourselves because we're dead in our sins. When he tells us that there is no one righteous, that no one seeks for God, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It's offensive. We don't like that. We cry foul when Jesus tells the rich young ruler that there's no one good but God. Like, but I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, you see the Dahmer show on Netflix? I'm better than that guy, at least. Okay? Stacy and I got through 20 minutes of the first episode and had to turn it off. I'm like, geez, man, I just can't put that stuff in my head before I go to bed. Um, but it's very, uh, it's offensive to us when we're told we're not good. Um, I mean, I love to believe that I'm better than I am, stronger than I am, cleaner than I am, that I can pull myself up on my bootstraps, that I can clean up my, that I can clean myself up, that I can do enough good to get good from God. I can do that. Um, 
I love to believe that I'm, that I'm better than I am, cleaner than I am. I mean, grace, pure grace, always offends those with a high anthropology. Always. It's just a big sociological word for human beings are basically good. Okay, low anthropology is the view of humanity that the Bible distributes, that the Bible gives us, that we are broken people in need of God's grace. That's actually a very relieving message, okay? Um, High anthropology is, I can do it. I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, and doggone it, people like me, okay? Stuart Smalley, if any of you remember Saturday Night Live from the early 90s. Um, But this over-inflated view of ourselves to be honest, plays right into our deepest fears. If I'm not strong, I'm doomed. If I don't hold it all together, I'm in trouble. If I don't, if I don't do it all right, my life will end up all wrong. If I don't parent perfectly, my kids are going to be jacked up. If I don't love my wife or love my husband or love my friends and family the way that they need to be loved, then they might leave me. Okay, life is heavy gets heavy and it gets hard when it's all riding on you, when it's all up to you. Job's friends were compounding Job's suffering by telling him he had the power to rescue himself by doing more, trying harder, and getting himself clean. That's where Job's friends went wrong. They missed grace altogether. Altogether. Um, If they had known something of grace... They would have known that the bad get the best and failures get forgiveness in God's economy. They would have known that. But they didn't, and that means that their counsel was gospel-less. It wasn't centered on the gospel, good news. It was gospel-less. Job needed to hear what we all need to hear, all of us. He's no different than us. He needed to hear from his friends what we need to hear from our friends. He needed to hear from the people around him the same thing we need to hear from the people around us. When we're in a, in a season of losing, pain, suffering, discouragement, whatever the case may be, uh, what we need is good news. We don't even need good advice as much as we need good news. We don't need exhortations on how to behave better primarily, although that is important, both of those things are important, primarily what we need is good news. Job needed to hear in his crucible of ache what you and I need to hear. Uh, He needed to hear less about what he needed to do and more about all God had already done for him. What he needed from his friends was good news. He needed them to preach the gospel to him. That's what he needed to counsel the gospel to him. He needed them to say something like this, Job, man, we don't understand what's happening or why it's happening, but God, absent as he seems right now, is ultimately your only hope. I know it may not seem like it right now, but he is your strength, he's your rock, he's your deliverer, he hasn't left you, he loves you. And he's there for you, and he will come through for you. That's what he needed his friends to say. That's what he needed. I can't, 
I can't untangle this mess that has become your life, Job. I don't have any answers for you. I wish I did. I wish there was something I could say to relieve you of your pain. I, I can't. There, I don't understand. The complexity of suffering is way beyond my comprehension. But what I can tell you is this, that even though God may seem absent and even though you, it may feel like God has deserted you or that he's punishing you, this I can tell you for certain. While I can't explain what God's doing or why God's doing it, I can tell you that he loves you, that he promised he would never leave you, that he hasn't abandoned you, that he is your hope, he is your rock, he is your deliverer. He, he will come through for you again the way he's come through for you before. And while you struggle to believe that, we, your friends, will believe it for you for a while. We'll, we'll, we'll shoulder that burden. And every time you doubt that's true, we'll be right there to remind you. And every time you wonder whether or not God really is good and whether or not God really loves me, we'll be right there to remind you. We'll be right there to remind you that God loves you. He loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Absolutely nothing. That you are locked in a cage of God's affection. It's unwavering. It's unconditional. That's what he needed to hear. I mean, isn't, isn't that what you need to hear? It's what I need to hear. I need to hear that all the time. Martin Luther said, I have to preach the gospel to my people every week because they forget it every week. And then he went on to say, I also have to preach the gospel to myself every day because I forget it every day. And while that is true, I would add to what Luther said that not only do we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, we need those around us preaching the gospel to us every day too, reminding us of who God is. That's why being in community is so, I know there are, we have a large audience of people who don't live in the Jupiter area and they join us week in and week out via live stream and all of them have voiced how badly they wish they could be here in person. Um, and they can't be. But while they are excused, <laughs> okay, um, because they can't be here, uh, the importance of being here, okay, is so paramount because I need to hear you guys singing on Sunday morning. Your singing reminds me when I hear your voices. It reminds me when I have conversations with you before church, after church, it reminds me of who God is. We need to be constantly reminding one another with our voices so that we can hear it with our ears, reminding one another that God loves us, that regardless of what we're going through, we're going through it together and God is guiding us and directing us and protecting us, even though it may not seem like it. That God is doing something. He's, he's working for us and he's working on us and he's doing things that are good. I need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. And if, if I'm not around you guys, I don't, I don't get to hear that reminder. And you don't get to hear that reminder from me. Um, I mean, there is no substitute for face-on-face -face community. None, none. I am incredibly grateful for the technological tools that enable us to sit in a small room like this in Jupiter, Florida, and people around the world get to be a part of this in that way. That is a gift from God, and it doesn't cost anything. It used to cost something if you, all you had was television and radio. It's free. That's a gift from God. But it's no substitute 
for me hearing you tell, remind me in the way that you sing that God is faithful, that Jesus reigns above it all. I need to hear you guys see that, sing that. Uh, you guys need to hear me say what I say, and I need to hear you sing what you sing. And when we talk together, we need to hear that from one another because life is hard, as I said, and pain is real, but grace abounds. And as a friend of mine said the other day, grace is always mediated through a noun, through a person, a place, or a thing. It's mediated. Yes, I mean, God distributes his grace promiscuously, and he gives his grace generously. But it, it, I, I, I encounter God's grace when I hear someone close to me say, God loves you even though you're, a, you're probably hard to love sometimes. Okay, when people tell me that, which is not very often at all, <laughs> but when they do, it's just I hear grace in that. I hear grace in that. When I'm acting kind of, you know, pissy, and instead of Stacy acting pissy back, okay, um, she, you know, she's just like, I love you, honey. I, I get God's grace in that. Grace is mediated through one another. That's why I've said for a long time now that Christianity is not just Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. It's one of the reasons to be quiet, and this is personal preference, but it's one of the reasons I rarely close my eyes during the worship set here on Sunday morning because I, I want to see. I, I want to see God's people together singing in unison about who he is in our rattletrap lives, singing about our need for him. That's what Job needed to hear from his friends. That's what he needed to hear. Instead, he got these moralistic prescriptions about, well, you've clearly done something bad, but you can get yourself out of this mess. God will come back to you if you get clean. God will come back to you if you become more obedient. God will come back to you and restore to you all of your fortunes and all of your blessings if you just do the right thing, Job. That's not, that's not good news. That's not even good advice. That's bad news. What he needed to hear was good news. He needed to hear that even though they can't fathom what Job must be going through because they haven't gone through it themselves, and even though they can't even pretend to understand what God may or may not be doing, I can tell you this, Job, he loves you, and he's never abandoned you, and he never will. We may never fully understand why God allows us to suffer in the ways that we do, but it's not answers that we ultimately need. It's God. It's not relief that we ultimately need. It's, it's God. It's not a problem-free life that we ultimately need. It's God. It's not that we need certain things to go a certain way that we ultimately need. It's, it's God when things go the wrong way. We need God. And Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 reminds us that we have God. Yes, we need him, but it's a need that has been met. Our need for God has been met by God. We need him, and he's delivered himself to us. And Isaiah says it beautifully, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. 
I will help you. I will never leave you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. I will carry you. I will walk with you. I will be with you. The hope of the Christian faith is not that God will rescue us from our pain and suffering in this life. It's that he will be with us in it. The cross shows that so clearly. That is God with his hands in the dirt with us, dying for us because he loves us. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.